0: This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by LifeWay, publisher of The Sermon on the Mount Bible Study by Jen Wilkin. In this nine-session study, Wilkin invites readers to examine and learn from Jesus' longest recorded message and challenge themselves to think differently about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. With your purchase, you'll also receive access to this study's video sessions. Get your copy today at lifeway.com slash sermon on the mount. Welcome to the Gospel Coalition podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. On today's episode, you'll hear from Melissa Childers, Brett McCracken, Preston Perry, and Trevin Wax on Before You Lose Your Faith, Deconstructing Doubt in the Church, This panel discussion was originally held at TGC's 2021 National Conference.
1: You're here for Before You Lose Faith, dealing with doubt and deconstruction in the church. My name is Brett McCracken. I'm a senior editor for the Gospel Coalition. Really excited about this conversation today. It's a really timely topic. I think most of us in this room probably have people in our lives who are on this deconstruction journey, whether children or people in your church you're walking with, friends, family. Uh, So I hope this is going to be a helpful conversation. I think it will be. First, I want to thank Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary for sponsoring this uh, panel today. You can learn more about them at their booth in the exhibit hall or at mbts.edu. So thank you to them. So I'm going to introduce our panelists in a minute, but just by way of preface, um, just a few thoughts some estimates are that 60% of people raised in the Christian faith deconstruct their faith after high school, and I think we're seeing that this trend of deconstruction is increasing. It seems to be accelerating in recent years, coinciding with the rise of the religious nuns, people who I don't identify with any faith, and the factors behind this rise in deconstruction are many, and we'll talk about some of them today. I think social media and the internet has something to do with it. Cultural changes, political dynamics, and political shifts that have made Christianity distasteful or untenable for some people. But whatever the reasons for it, this rise in deconstruction and deconversion are distressing. It, it, it breaks our hearts to see people leave the faith. Enough, enough, so that we at TGC thought we should produce some resources on it. So we came out with this book. It just released before you lose your faith. Uh, I think it's one of the free books that you should receive um, for being here at this conference. It's an edited volume, so there's a bunch of contributors. I contributed a chapter, Trevin contributed a chapter. We have um, Karen Swallow Pryor, Rachel Gilson, Derek Rishmaui, Joshua Ryan Butler, and many more. So it's an excellent resource for people who have people in their lives who are going through this. Um, so be sure to pick that up and read that. And we're going to talk about some of the themes in that book today in this panel. One thing just that we should know about deconstruction is that it doesn't always have to end in deconversion, right? Deconstruction can be a healthy thing. It's not always bad. Doubt and questioning can be valuable in the life of faith. Something that Ivan Mesa writes, um, he's the editor of this book. In the introduction to the book, he says this, deconstructing however jarring and emotionally exhausting need not be need not need not end in a cul-de-sac of unbelief in fact deconstructing can be the road toward reconstructing building up a more mature robust faith that grapples honestly with the deep deepest questions of life and i think that's really what we want to focus on today how can we walk with people through deconstruction how can we respond to this trend in a way that leads more of these people back to faith, to a more robust faith, uh, rather than away from the faith. Um, So I think there's some positive ways we can talk about that, hopefully. But first, let me introduce our panelists. So um, we have Elisa Childers. She's a wife, mom, author, blogger, speaker, worship leader. Uh, You may remember her from the CCM group, Zoe Girl. Anyone remember Zoe Girl? Uh, Alisa is, um, she is an astute observer and a critic of progressive Christianity, and she's written some of the most successful, most read articles on the Gospel Coalition website, whether reviewing books by Rachel Hollis, Jen Hatmaker, Glennon Doyle, or deconstructing the deconversion story of YouTube comedians Rhett and Link. Um, She's just a talented, effective communicator on this topic, so grateful to have you here. And her new book, another gospel, um, came out recently. Um, And this is a great book. It's a helpful first-person account of her personal experience with progressive Christianity. So, Elisa, thanks for being here. And then we have Preston Perry. Preston is a poet, performance artist, teacher, apologist, originally from Chicago. His writing and teaching has been featured in places like the Gospel Coalition, the Poets in Autumn Tour, Legacy, Disciple, In 2017, Preston founded Bold TV and Bold Apparel as avenues to engage the public in theological discourse. And if you haven't already checked out Preston's YouTube channel, I would urge you to do that. It's called Apologetics with Preston Perry, and he has these great videos where he engages in kind of street conversations with random folks who are agnostics, atheists, you know, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons black Hebrew Israelites, sometimes like the wide range of people on the spectrum of belief or unbelief. And so I think you're going to be a helpful voice on this panel for your experiences with probably many of the questions that people who are deconstructing their faith often kind of bring up. So we're grateful to have Preston. Preston is married to Jackie Perry. Uh, They live in Atlanta and they have three daughters. So thanks for being here, man. And we have Trevin Wax. Trevin is a general editor of the Gospel Project at Lifeway Christian Resources. Uh, Trevin is a regular columnist for TGC. You've probably read some of his articles. He's contributed also to the Washington Post, Religion News Service, World, Christianity Today, which named Trevin one of 33 millennials shaping the next generation of evangelicals. Trevin's authored numerous books, most recently, Rethink Yourself, The Power of Looking Up Before Looking In, and the multi-directional leader, responding wisely to challenges from every side, which is also one of the free books you received here at GDC 21. He and his wife, Corinna, have three children and live in Nashville. Okay, so we are gonna jump into questions here. And the first question I wanna throw out to all of you, whoever wants to answer it, is to go back to what I said about deconstruction doesn't always need to lead to deconversion. In your experiences, what does healthy deconstruction look like? What factors are present that make someone's deconstruction journey ultimately lead them to a more robust orthodox faith rather than leading them out of the faith? Anyone want to jump in first on that?
2: Well, I would just say it depends on how you define deconstruction. Because if you're going to define deconstruction as going through all of your beliefs, picking them apart, discarding the ones that are untrue then I think that deconstruction can be very healthy, especially if you're deconstructing maybe some of the cultural uh, Christian things that some of us grew up with. If, If you're deconstructing even anti- and unbiblical practices, I think that can be a good thing. But I think typically in our culture, deconstruction is more understood as sort of being undergirded by relativism. In my experience of reading deconstruction stories, there's sort of this fundamental assumption that objective truth doesn't really exist. And so it's sort of our job as an enlightened, mature Christian to deconstruct the construct of truth that we grew up with. And ultimately, the purpose of that is to live our own truth, to, to sort of get to the bottom of that and reject that and live our own truth. So I think a healthy deconstruction would be based in truth, and an unhealthy one would be based more in a relativistic postmodern type of, of uh, setting. Uh,
3: i I think along those lines, I think there's a there's a healthy deconstruction that uh, can often take place in the lives of young people who grow up in the church and have to and arrive at a point where they are are really questioning what do I really believe? What does the Bible really teach? Do I believe this just because I was handed this, because I was taught this, or do I believe this? Do I really own this for myself? Is this, is this faith true, and is this faith going to be mine personally rather than just something I've sort of inherited? And um, a lot of times there are young people in our congregations who, uh, going back to what Alyssa said with the, the two kinds of um, deconstruction. There, sometimes we'll confuse which process is actually going on there, and I think we've got to be careful that we don't take difficult, piercing questions um, uh, among young people uh, who have grown up in our congregations as necessarily a sign that they're 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 in that relativistic moving toward a deconstruction that uh, would would lead them away from the faith. They may be asking really good questions. Because they are, they they have faith that are seeking understanding. That's a healthy process, uh, one that I think should be encouraged, and one that should lead church leaders to uh, to to want to brush up on. Okay, well, it's a really good question, and even if you don't immediately have the answer, it's the kind of one that you'd want to to help them wrestle through some of those questions and help them understand from Scripture why it is we believe what we believe, or why we do certain practices, or why are church is, is a, a certain way. So uh, I, I think that's a, a, a key thing to remember is that everyone's particular experience is different. And when someone is opening up about doubt or they may be like me, I was a challenging uh, young person. Like I, the way I would learn is i challenge my parents. But it wasn't because I was trying to move away from the faith. It was because I was really challenging hard to see, is this real? Like, is this going to, is this going to withstand all of my my questions and my, uh, 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 you know, trying to, to, to understand uh, what it is, just how solid this Christianity thing really is. Uh, don't always take that sort of aggressive uh, questioning as, as coming from someone who's hostile to the faith. Sometimes that's the personality of a, of a teenager who's really wrestling for themselves what they, with what they believe.
4: I'll just quickly add, I, th- I think uh, a healthy factor um, is someone not deconstructing their faith on an island um, and for church leaders to understand that uh, we shouldn't allow someone who is deconstructing their faith to be on the island. I think that when you are alone with your thoughts, your questions, your doubts, I think that you need, you know, mature Christians around you that you know you can come to with those questions. And so I just think this being in community, um, not divorcing the community as a whole, but just, you know, having community around when you have those questions and doubts.
1: Yeah, totally. I, that, I think we were talking before uh, we got out here about so much of the critique of, against conservative Christians talking about deconstruction is that we're recommending that it take place in the church. But the critics are saying, but the church is the most unhelpful place for this. And that's, we're out of the church for a reason. And, and so why are, you, why are you wanting us to deconstruct within the very place that has been hostile to us or unsafe for us? So um, what's interesting is that community is now developing online. So I think most of the people in my experience who are going through deconstruction journeys are finding kind of a community of fellow deconstructing Christians online, whether podcasts or blogs or Twitter or whatever. So that gets to a question that I wanted to ask about um, the conditions in our culture right now that are making it so Fertile for deconstruction. Charles Taylor, in his book A Secular Age, talks about the conditions of belief that that have to be there in order for belief to be plausible. But I want to flip that and ask what are the conditions of unbelief that make deconstruction so plausible today? What are the kind of structural, cultural factors in place that are contributing to this? Social media, as I mentioned, might be one. Any other thoughts on that? Not so much the issues in particular. The hard questions about hell or sexuality, but just kind of the structures and the conditions in our culture that are making deconstruction such a thing right now
3: well we we live in a in a world of endless choices uh, in so many different areas, and so one of the things that makes deconstruction plausible is the fact that there is this endless variety of, of, of options and because we also live in a society that is all about Looking in to find and express yourself as being the purpose of life, you know expressive individualism, uh, there are all kinds of identities that people can try on for themselves so one of the when you, and then when you have the internet age the that you were talking about Brett, I mean you wind up you wind up being able to access information and um, uh, be able to tap into communities of people who have found some kind of uh, identity around the fact that they are now can, don't consider themselves uh, Christian or evangelical or whatever their background was. That that's part of how they see them finding out who who they are. Um, so the, the challenge from, from that kind of a society is that there are all these options that are out there, and we as Christians are called to to live and to, to be the church in this kind of an environment. The opportunity, though, with that is that... Um, uh, knowing that there are other, the, all those other options available, it actually can give uh, Christians additional reasons and additional motivation. And sometimes can, you can press on things that maybe previous generations wouldn't have pressed on or wouldn't have been seen as controversial. And you wind up coming up with a firmer faith on the other side of that because you're actually testing uh, aspects of, of your faith in different ways. So both challenge and opportunity, like with any cultural context, I think is what makes this uh, so prevalent.
2: I think too, um, if we look at deconstructing, it's really a, a movement, right? This is a phenomenon that's happening. That's really a movement. As you mentioned, there are Instagram pages and Facebook pages. There are therapists emerging to help you to deconstruct your Christianity that you grew up with. And so I think we need to realize that This movement is largely an ex-evangelical movement. Certainly there are some deconstructed Catholics and and things like that as well. But this this is a movement of people who are reacting against the type of Christianity they grew up with. And I think it's two-pronged. I think it's doctrinal and... It's a reaction against maybe some of the unbiblical things that they were brought up with. Uh, If you go online, you can find uh, this kind of growing sentiment of the six pillars of deconstruction that start with questioning the Bible, then it moves on to the doctrine of hell, and then penal substitutionary atonement. Um, there 's eschatology and these these pillars that the deconstruction movement say this is what holds Christianity up, and once you knock one of those down, the whole thing falls and so I think doctrinal uh, beliefs is is one of the prongs, the other prong is things like people are walking away from, maybe they've encountered legitimate spiritual abuse. In, in chapter four of my book, I talk about some of these reasons, uh, hyper-fundamentalism, hyper-legalism, uh, the problem of suffering, not understanding how God could be good and not answer prayers that they were told in church, God's gonna answer those prayers, and then he doesn't, and they don't know what to do with that. So I think that it's a, it's a reactionary movement where really they're walking away from something more than running to some sort of universal thing that they're all saying, yes, this is what unifies us. This is what we believe.
0: Yeah,
1: absolutely. I've, I've, I think that's totally true. Um, it's so much driven by emotion and baggage and hurt. Um, Preston, because that's the case, that so often people who have left the faith or are deconstructing have just hurt from their past in the church. If, if you're in a conversation with someone on the streets of Atlanta, how is it, what is it? how do you approach it differently with someone like that? I would I would almost guess that it's somewhat easier to talk about Christianity with a Muslim or, you know, a, a Mormon or a Buddhist, someone who has an entirely different religion yeah. than someone who grew up as a Christian in the church but just has all this emotional kind of baggage and hurt. So where do you start with them? What do you say? To
4: them? Yeah, uh, I talk to, in the streets, I, I typically talk to two type of people. I talk to the people that you just named, or I talk to like Hebrew Israelites or Moors. And I, I found out that these people have left the faith because they're, they're mad at America or they're mad at, you know, white supremacy. But uh, a lot of times when I talk to people in other religions, I, I try to hear why they serve the God that they serve in the first place. The first thing I do, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily try to knock them over the head with scripture. I try to learn their names. I try to, you know, learn why they believe what they believe in the first place and get a foundation of who they are. And then after that, I try to ask them, like, why do you believe what you believe? What what, what, what drew you to believe what you believe? Because I think a lot of times when I run into these um, Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses, they've had encounters with Christians, and they weren't good good encounters. You know, they kind of feel like Christians beat them over the head with Scripture. And so I never want to talk one one, one to one Jehovah's Witness and act like I you know, um, know you because i talk to another Jehovah's Witness. I'm going to deal with them like they're made in the image of God, like they're individual, and, and, you know, and go from there.
1: Yeah, every story is unique. Like, and you said that as well. Yeah. So I think starting from a place of listening and, and trying to maybe ask the question, what is the Christianity you're rejecting? I think that's a good... You have to kind of figure out, like, what exactly are you rejecting? Because more often than not, it's not necessarily the nicene creed that they're rejecting it may be some of that but it's the cultural baggage it's the politics because people
2: people
4: also people in that in in those religions they haven't really deconstructed anything they were brought up in a religion and so like when i talk to mormons they were brought up in this and so i want to i want to know like why why do you think this is the truth and let's go to the scriptures and try to see how this contradicts what you believe if that makes if that makes sense
1: yeah yeah Uh, Alisa, something you mentioned, uh, you talked about kind of this growing industry, this like deconstruction trademark um, industry of books and podcasts and influencers and all of that. And something that troubles me just generally in the church today is this dynamic of the internet is this formation space. It's a spiritual formation space and, you know, Christians everywhere right now are being discipled almost more by the voices they're finding online than their own local church pastor. And um, to go back to the idea of like healthy deconstruction takes place in the local church. Well, in in the pandemic, we spent less time in the local church than we ever have and more time online than we ever have. And so maybe that's accelerated this deconstruction trend. So what advice would you give to, to pastors and people trying to disciple Christians who they know in the flesh in their local space but how do you counter that online influence?
2: Yeah, this is a really good question. And so just for a little bit of a context for me to answer this question, uh, is that I kind—I went through my own bout with deconstruction and doubt uh, of, over 10 years ago as the result of being a part of a small class in a progressive Christian church. I didn't know it was progressive Christian church at the time. But it, it sort of catapulted me into this bit of deconstruction. I don't want to exaggerate it. I never lost my belief in God, but those pillars I mentioned, those started falling for me. I didn't know what to call it at the time, Uh, but it was very scary, and you'll hear people who talk about deconstruction describe it as uh, with words like terror. It's, It's a terrifying thing to be raised in something, and then you no longer really believe it, and So in my own life, what I discovered was I had a couple of people in my life who reacted very differently from each other. So when I would sort of get brave enough to maybe mention something, one person in my life reacted with a ton of fear. And just basically shut me down. Don't. That's, you shouldn't doubt. You shouldn't ask those questions. Just believe the Bible. You know, Jesus. You, and, and it was very, very fearful. And that really pushed me away. And I didn't feel like I could really trust that person to go deeper into what I was really thinking. Now, there was another person in my life who reacted completely calm. Just like, oh, okay. Well, yeah, that's a good question. I remember thinking that when I, back when I was a hippie or whatever. <laughs> And let's let's discover that. I don't know the answer, but, you know, let's check back in in a week. And that invited me into more of a conversation. And I think especially when it's our kids, I get so many emails from people with grown adult children that are in the process of deconstruction. And they're saying, what do we do? And I just think the best thing we can do is, like like Preston said, really genuinely care about them as a person and what they do believe and why they believe that. And try to engage uh, without being too dogmatic with our truth claims, right? You don't want to, if somebody's in that process of deconstruction, you don't want to come in in debate mode. You want to come in in curiosity mode. And so I always tell people, you you don't have to be fearful because you don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to be a theologian or an apologist. You just have to be curious and be willing to go on a journey with somebody to discover some of the answers. If they're teachable and open and want to know the answers, but that's the question because sometimes... It's kind of like, uh, just like I heard Trevin describe it, sometimes doubt and deconstruction can be uh, just seeking for answers to justify that you've already kind of left.
1: Trevin, um, a question for you. Um, In your book, Rethink the Self, you talk about how two of the most common questions about Christianity that arise in a deconstructing journey are, is Christianity true and is Christianity good? Is that right? Those are the two. Yeah. Which one do you think is kind of the dominant one right now in what you're seeing with the deconstructing journeys? Is it mostly about the truth claims and kind of that cerebral level, or is it mostly about the kind of, is this a good thing? Like, is this a beautiful thing or is it both? Which And how do you respond to each of those?
3: Well, they, they both, they both hang together um, at, at, at some level and it, of course it's different for, for different people. So uh, this there 's not a one size fits all there are some who are more intellectually minded who ask really good questions and who are more in the in the vein of wanting uh, really to test things rationally and logically that may uh, trip up on, on the some of the truth claims of christianity but um I do think that uh, what what often happens right now and and i probably a little bit of a of a more dominant starting point and i 'd be curious maybe the There's disagreement on the panel about this, but I do think the goodness of Christianity is one of the the key things leading to questions that then begin to unravel some of the truth claims of Christianity. So um, how can Christianity be good if, you know, this is Christianity's, you know, uh, uh, some of the the egregious things Christians have done in the past, or how could Christianity be good uh, with our our view of uh, sexuality, or how could Christianity be good and beautiful if this when, when Christianity from a moral perspective no longer seems to be plausible and makes sense, um, it then leads to questions about truth. This actually is a, a, the opposite of challenge that apologists and Christians were facing a century ago. Um, a century ago, you had a lot of people who were thinking, you know, the way that we are going to... Uh, um, uh, save the faith for the next generation is in this scientific age that we're living in, an age of technological wonders. Uh, we need to downplay, you know, if not deny, at least downplay the the supernatural truth claims of Christianity because we can't expect people to, to believe and, you know, or to, we can't lead out with the fact that, you know, Jesus was born of a virgin and things like that. And, um, and so the idea was, let's just emphasize the morality, the, the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, and this was the, the move that a lot of uh, Christians made a century ago, thinking this is the way forward with the truth. Well, a century later, things have flipped the other way, and to, you a know, hundred years ago, people wanted the uh, morality of Christianity without the miracles. Today, there are a lot of people that would like the miracles of Christianity without the morality. The, the morality is the is the trip-up point, and people will say, I, I can affirm the, the, the creed, but don't expect me necessarily to go along with what the Bible teaches or what the church has taught about uh, sexuality, gender, and things like that. And so um, the today I think the goodness and beauty question tends to be more of an entry point because the moral structures of our society have changed in such a way that Christianity seems um, not just old-fashioned but repressive and uh, um, uh, actually harmful. And when that happens, it leads to questions that then lead to the, to the truth um, questions as well.
4: Yeah I just want I want to quickly add like the, the religions that you, you mentioned before, they're, they're often brought up in those religions, but the, the experiences that, I, that, I, that I've had when people who have left the faith or, or, or deconstructed their faith and found another faith, they did so because of their interaction with Christians. And so I think it's important for us as Christians to, 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 to allow them to see that the God of the scriptures that you have done away with um, is, is not the not the enemy, right? And so I, I I I do a a lot a lot of work of trying to build a good rapport with them and giving them an experience with the Christian property that they never had. I've heard people say I, I left the church because the people in the Christian church exploit people. I left the Christian church because the people in the Christian church don't um uh, identify with the black experience and so I look at myself as that is that probably that first representation of what a true Christian looks like, and I think that speaks value about the God that i that I serve
1: yeah I know that's good um yeah, I think in my experience recently, and this is maybe kind of an elephant in the room that we have to discuss a lot of the goodness of Christianity that doesn't look good. doesn't, the fragrance isn't nice to people is political things, right? There's a lot of young people I know who have started their deconstruction journeys or have really like accelerated in their deconstruction journeys in the last four years, um, in the the Trump years. So yeah, if, what I've heard is like, it's kind of like they say, you know, if there's something in Christianity that would lead so many Christians to fundamentally support this, I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with that. I, I've heard people tell me that. So it's almost like all the theology, Jesus himself is less compelling as an attraction as the repellent of this political thing that supposedly is a package deal with Christianity. So maybe, Preston, how would you respond to a young person like that who's thinking of walking away from Christianity or has walked away because specifically of what they've seen in politics from yeah, Christians?
4: Yeah, we, we're, we're actually experiencing that a lot in our church, and just not, I think, our church, but a lot of African-American churches who feel like the just the church in the West don't ident- identify with who they are as, in, as a black person. And I, I wrote a poem called New World Christian. And one of the lines I said, um, are you terrified of hugging someone who voted for Trump on Sunday mornings? And I don't think that Trump is the enemy. But I do think that a lot of times it's hard to sit in the pews with people who you don't feel like they identify with who you are holistically as an image bearer. And so uh, I, I've heard, you know, a lot of black Christians who feel like um, the church wants me to be Christian, but not black. Um, and so how do, I, how do I how do I deal with that? Um, and now you have in the in in black community, a lot of these black religions um, taking advantage of that, you know, taking advantage of how some white evangelicals respond when a black body pops up on the news and you know, recruiting them into their, their false religions. And so I think the way we deal with that is to uh, yeah, truly venture into the hard, uncomfortable conversations I think another way to deal with that is when somebody like Mike Brown dies on the news, don't just have Bible study the next day without addressing the congregation as if your black uh, brothers and sisters in the church are not hurting. I think um, sometimes we just have to pause and, and know that um, people in our communities are, are struggling, even if they're not in our, in our worlds. And so I think that I think the church has to essentially just mourn with those who mourn. And I think that we will see a lot of people, um, um, have, when they have those questions, they will come to the church and not go out into the world and, yeah, and yeah. adopt lies. I, th-
3: I, think, I think there's a, a flip side to the political question as well. Uh, there are many places in the country, because we are in such a polarized moment, in which uh, a church's hardline stance against, you know, Trump or Republican Party it can also drive people away or people think uh, people go for sort of a secular, post-Christian right-wing uh, 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 political views. And, I mean, that's one of the things that's been said the last, you know, few years or so is if, you know, I, I think the joke is if you're afraid of the Christian right, you should really worry about the post-Christian right, you know, and what that looks like. Um, and so there are, there are definitely... Um, there are places in the in the country where, uh, on either side of the political question, it could lead people to a, a place where they're, um, m- you know, moving away from historic Christianity. Uh, the the the. So what do we do in that kind of, of scenario? Um, I think the most important thing that we as as Christians need to remember is that um, Christianity is a global faith. Um, the last four years which have led to some of the stories you're talking about, Brett, I mean, is, a, is just a tiny fraction of a 2,000-year history of Christianity, and really only a tiny fraction of issues that are facing Christians all over the world today. And so one of the things that we've got to be able to do, I think, if we want to be able to steady the souls of our, our people during difficult, tumultuous political times is to be able to lift our eyes above the, the, the rancor of the current moment um, and to be able to recognize, yes, the church falls short here and the church falls short there and that, and that the, the gospel is not tied ever to one political tribe or one political party or, or a, a partisan movement, that, but that the gospel must transcend that and that we must uh, look for ways to show people in our congregations that we are united to people who are in other parts of the world facing other, parts of challenge, other kinds of challenges and yet are united with them by the blood of Jesus. And that that is our ultimate identity. And if you can't relativize, if there's anything that should be relativized, it should be uh, politics. Because right now, we live in a society where as religion is on the decline, people are making their politics their religion. And that's one of the challenges that we face. And I'm sure there are many people in this room watching online who who are seeing that happen, whether it be on the right or the left in their congregations. And it has to be resisted because at the end of the day, it's idolatry.
4: I just want to I just want to quickly add. Um, I think, I think it's important for us to also know that the, the, that the issue really isn't Trump. Is it, it, the issue really isn't policy. I think the issue is, is, is people in your congregation, are they convinced that you love them? And so I think that when people are afraid to sit in the pews of people who voted for Trump, it's not you voting for Trump. It's they, this, this seed that's been planted in people's minds that who you voted for goes against how I was created in the Imago day. And so I think that we need to to do the hard work of having those hard conversations so the enemy cannot have a field day in the minds of our brothers and sisters in the pews. And so I do a lot of urban apologetics, and these urban apologetics that I I, I do, I'm consistently confronted with people who are telling me that I'm a fool for worshiping with my white brothers and sisters. And I know the gospel goes against that, right? But I, I, I think people... Black, black brothers and sisters in the church, I think they're they're running to these religions because they feel like they have more of an identity with them than their true brothers and sisters in Christ, and I think that's the problem. I think we need to do a hard work of letting people know, yeah, I voted for Trump, but I still love you.
1: You know, and so. Yeah. No, that's, that's a good word. Um, I think one of the things I've observed that kind of relates to what we're talking about is this conflation of um, politics and theology, so that to be theologically conservative, somehow you also must be politically conservative and and vice versa. Like if you're politically progressive, does that mean you also need to change your beliefs to be more theologically progressive? But I think the global perspective that you raised, Trevin, it just helps remind us that we can kind of disentangle those to some extent. You can be a theologically conservative Christian in some other part of the world that has a totally different political scene than the U.S., and maybe your politics lean left, even though your theology is as conservative as a you know Republican in the U.S. or whatever. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of work we can do there to disentangle that conflation of you must be politically conservative to be theologically conservative or something like that. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and ask a question to you, Elisa. Um, as I was reading your book, I was um, thinking back to... Um, Jay Gresham Meshin's book, Christianity and Liberalism, and he kind of defines progressive Christianity, liberal Christianity, as another religion entirely. It's it's further from uh, Christianity than, than Protestants and Catholics are. Like, Protestants and Catholics are closer together than liberal Christianity is from Orthodox Christianity. And you say in your book, that if you became convinced that Jesus was just a good teacher or a man to imitate, you wouldn't become a progressive Christian, you'd just walk away from the faith. Because, quote, progressive Christianity offers me nothing of value. It gives me no hope for the afterlife, no joy in this one. It offers a hundred denials with nothing concrete to affirm. And I think that's true of what we're seeing. the Deconstruction is deconstruction with very little interest in reconstruction. So my question is, if it's true that If this is true, then isn't progressive Christianity always just a transition stage to no Christianity? Or do you see people who actually kind of sustain an active, meaningful faith as a progressive Christian?
2: Yeah, this is a really good question. Uh, So I I would say that I think it would be be overshooting it to say, yes, it's always this, this sort of doorway out of the faith. But I do think, and and this is going to be anecdotal, I don't have studies to back it up, just my experience engaging with the movement, is that in many cases it is. In fact, I've received, uh, after I wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition sort of comparing some of the beliefs of progressive Christians and atheists, interestingly, because when I was in my faith crisis, I couldn't find really any apologetics that were dealing with progressive Christians. But it was all the same stuff, all the same claims and the same... Uh, questions were being answered by the apologists when they were answering atheists. And so it really stood out to me that they had some of these beliefs in common. And so certainly there are a, a good number of progressive Christians who, st- who so far, you know, are staying there. Uh, there there are theologically uh, informed progressive Christians, biblically literate. They're not all just, you know, biblically illiterate or just trying to be hip and cool. I mean, they get characterized that way sometimes, but some of them are very deeply convinced of their theology but I do think that in many cases, it is a doorway out, and Bart Campolo, who is the son of famous evangelist Tony Campolo, I think makes this point really well. He started going through a process of deconstruction, and he started questioning the resurrection and the deity of Jesus, and he said it was, uh, when he referred to unanswered prayers, he said it was like death by a thousand paper cuts. And, and I was watching an interview with him, and he kind of made the point, you know, if you've lost all these beliefs you should just call it what it is. And that's why he calls himself a secular humanist. And so that's why in the book I do argue that, you know, progressive Christians, this isn't just a group of people that have changed their minds on some social issues. This isn't just a group of Christians who might be rethinking politics. They are teaching a different God. It's a different Jesus. They have denied core doctrines of the faith, like, uh, like human beings having a sin nature, that sin separating us from God, the blood atonement of Jesus. These are all things that are roundly rejected in the progressive church. So yes, I do think that in many cases it is a way out, but certainly I think it would be an exaggeration to say in all cases. But I, I did get a lot of emails from atheists after I wrote that article saying, yeah, that was, that was it for me.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it doesn't happen always, but sadly, it's it seems like more often than not, you see this progression, right? You see this first question and change on doctrine. Then you see an Instagram post, you know, that's kind of pondering, like, I distancing myself from the church. And then, you know, the next thing, you know, they're taking mushrooms and having psychedelic trips, you know, uh, which is a real uh, deconstruction story that I saw on social media last week. And I have a worship album by this former Christian musician. So it's a sad progression, um, but we're running out of time. So I just want to land in a practical question for, and I want each of you to answer this. What's the best advice you would give to a pastor, a parent, friend, family member, walking with someone on a deconstruction journey, a journey of doubt, journey of deconstruction? Well, what's the best helpful advice you'd give?
3: I just say, don't lose confidence in the, the power of the word and the power of Christian community. Um, the word still changes lives. The word is powerful. The word, when it's implanted in people's hearts and minds over time, even if there's a season of deconstruction, we are Christians who live with hope. And uh, people may appear to walk away from the faith for a while, uh, but we can continue to hold out hope that Jesus hasn't finished writing that story. Um, No matter who it is, no matter how far uh, they may have gone, Jesus is in the business of um, telling great stories of redemption. Um, So trust in the power of the word and then the the power of the Christian community. I know a lot of times uh, it is terrifying because people are walking away. um, A lot of, I will say this, don't make this mistake. A lot of times people... um, I see this happen in our circles a lot. They assume that when someone is moving away from Orthodox Christianity that they're doing so because they are wanting popularity with the world or whatnot. Um, There's a huge social cost, and it's scary for people who are considering leaving the community of faith that they belong to and what they might face and how alone they might feel when they're moving in that direction. So don't assume the worst of people's motives uh, as they're wrestling or as they're 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 moving away. Um, understand that the, the power of the Christian community is is extraordinarily important, and that the uh, the church is the herm- needs to be the hermeneutic of the gospel, as Leslie Newbegin said. That it's a it's a place where the gospel should be on display and should be seen as as plausible.
4: Yeah, I'll just quickly say uh, be a be a friend, be available um my wife often talks about homosexuality and she often talks about how sometimes Christians can treat people according to what they struggle with or what they're struggling with and I think that um I think that when we do that we make people we we make people always like we remind people about what they're struggling with and just, instead of just being a friend you know uh, and so I have a pastor and I'm very close with my pastor and um uh, it was a person in my church who was, um, going through a deconstruction phase in in their, in their walk. And he simply just told them like, whatever you're going through, just don't cut me out. Like, let me, like, let me always be, be there for you. And so we have friends who walked away from the faith because of, you know, they wanted to be homosexual. And, um, I felt it encouraging that they still wanted to come to our house and have dinner, knowing our position. And so I think that Christians just, you know, sometimes we just got to be normal. And sit down and have a conversation with somebody and not talk about what they're struggling with. And then when they're ready to talk, they'll come to us.
2: And I would just say, uh, just to add to, to all of that wisdom from my brothers here, um, don't make the mistake of thinking that the problem is purely intellectual. It's very rarely purely intellectual. Giving them an apologetics book is probably not going to fix it. You know, just bringing your best apologetic arguments. And I'm, a, I'm an apologist, so I love apologetics. But it's, it's not usually what they're needing or what they're wanting. And so uh, I think, Preston, what you said was so wise in that they need to know that you love them and that you genuinely care about them and you genuinely care about what they believe. And then I would say that the, the second thing is to just live out the real thing in front of them not just with your words, not just telling them the right things to believe, but let them see in your own life that this brings, this is joy from deep down in your own soul, that there's an immovable anchor of hope within you. And they will know that. That's what my parents gave me. And I know to this day that even though the apologetics helped rebuild my faith so much, it was the genuine Christianity that my parents modeled for me my whole life that clued me in to thinking I don't want to deconstruct that, and so I think that just loving in a genuine gospel-centered way is is key.
1: That's good. Yeah, and I would just add, um, I think that what I would say is just make sure to point people to Jesus. Like, there's a lot of issues circling around this, but we can lose Jesus in it and just he's being lost in the politics and the issues and the baggage and the church abuse. And there's so much terrible stuff. But this is a question about Jesus and how do you respond to his claims of who he says he is. Um, So point people to Jesus, remind them that Christianity is not mostly about what Christians have done or not done. Christianity is about what Jesus did for us and point them to him, right? Jesus is greater. He's greater than your doubt. He's greater than all these things that are happening in our culture that you're wrestling with. He's greater than politics and these issues that we're struggling with. So point to people to Jesus and then pray. I think all of us should be praying for our friends and family members on this journey. And so on that note, um, I would love to just pray to close our time. Father, we thank you that you are a great God, that you have done it. You have paid the cost. It is finished on the cross. That's the most important thing. We can affirm and believe and, and try to remind others to affirm and believe. And I just pray for those uh, in this room who have people close to them, who are walking away from the faith, who are on journeys of doubt, questioning. It's such a painful thing to go through. So I pray that you would just comfort people, as they struggle with this, as they walk with people who are struggling with this, and meet them in their doubt and in their questions and their deconstruction, and um, go after them like you go after the lost sheep and bring them back to the fold. That's our prayer. We want people to have stronger, more robust faith after having gone through this deconstruction, and to be able to testify and to bear witness to the fact that they have Questioned Christianity, but ultimately returned, finding it the most satisfying answer to their anxieties and stress and worries and problems. You are the answer, you are greater. And so we celebrate that today. And in your name we pray. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. Check out more gospel-centered resources at thegospelcoalition.org.